Well, this morning we're going to be talking about the resurrection of Christ, as it's Resurrection Sunday. And, you know, admittedly, there are several dates on the Christian calendar that, that matter to us as believers. There are times of the year that matter to us. We celebrate the incarnation of Christ in the month of December. We also celebrate some of the ways that he's worked through individual lives, and that dots our calendar as well. But even though in some contexts it may not be quite as celebrated as it deserves to be with the same kind of fanfare that other times of the year tend to get, the resurrection of Christ, it matters in more ways than I think sometimes we realize. And in fact, we're going to look today at some of the the ways Scripture lists that that the resurrection of Christ matters, maybe even in some ways that that I'm, I'm hoping I have something in today's message that you've never thought of before. I'm hoping that there's something today that opens up our eyes to something new that we haven't thought of. Because if Jesus didn't rise for death or from death, there would be no reason for us to gather together today for worship. If Jesus didn't rise from death, there would be no reason for us to gather today to worship. If he didn't rise from death, there would be no point in worshiping him or referring to ourselves as his followers. But thankfully, Jesus did rise from death, and he proved his divinity. And he gave us a foretaste of what he has in store for everyone who trusts in him. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is of paramount in its significance for us And uh, we're going to just take a few moments to look at a variety of scriptures this morning as we think about the significance of the resurrection. So let me have a word of prayer for us, and then we're going to dig into the scriptures together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness toward us. Thank you for the opportunity that you give to us to be able to come together and to worship you on this Resurrection Sunday, and to celebrate your goodness, and to celebrate all that you've done on our behalf. And Lord, we pray now that as we look at your word, that you would open up our minds and open up our hearts to understand it, that we would be encouraged by it, that you would fill us with great joy as we reflect upon all that you have accomplished on our behalf. So Father, we're grateful for what you've done for us through your Son, and again, we celebrate his resurrection today as one united family, your family, and we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. So because the resurrection happened, there's a variety of things that we can look at Scripture and, and realize are significant for you and for me and, and really for all those who trust in Christ. And one of the things that Scripture brings out to us that I want to highlight for starters this morning is that because the resurrection happened, death is defeated. Look with me if you would, and uh, we're going to be jumping around in Scripture, so you're welcome to just listen as I share these or you're welcome to turn there with me, but we are going to look at quite a few Scriptures I'm going to start us off this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'd like to read for you verses 55 through 57, where it demonstrates to us that death is defeated. In fact, we just as a congregation just sang these words just a moment ago, but it says in 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 55, it says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one of the most emotionally challenging things that you and I will ever deal with during the course of our earthly lives is the death of someone that we love. So in recent years, I know that that many of us have experienced that. In recent years, our family has certainly experienced that. And you always think that in time, you'll begin to adjust 
And I guess you do in some ways adjust, but I think that in some respects, sometimes I feel like I continue to adjust. You know, you continue to think about it. You continue to dwell on it. And I, I frequently think about the fact that it was quite an adjustment for the disciples of Christ to deal with the fact that he was crucified, and they knew it, and they experienced all the things that were taking place around it. And so consider how they would have felt right after Christ was crucified. Jesus was their retirement plan. You know, Jesus was there, like everything was, they were banking on him for everything. He was the one that they had placed their deepest hopes in. They had left everything to follow him, family businesses, uh, friendships, different contexts that they lived in or worked in or served in. They left everything. They left literally everything to go and follow Jesus. And then he was crucified. And so imagine what the disciples were really thinking when that took place and how they were feeling when that took place. They fully expected that during that season of history that he was about to set up a visible earthly kingdom in their lifetimes, and they even expected to reign with him in that kingdom, that visible earthly kingdom that they were expecting him to establish right then during that period of time. They thought they were going to reign. In fact, when you look at some of the funny things that Scripture tells us about the disciples and the growth process that they went through, it tells us that they actually argued about who was going to be more important in that kingdom, who was going to have a bigger title, or who was going to have more prestige in Christ's kingdom. And they would argue that, and they would debate that until their faith matured, and they began to realize, as Christ helped them realize, that that's not really something that a, someone with a servant's heart should be arguing about, right? You don't argue about who goes first. You, you look for opportunities to serve. But they expected to reign with him in his kingdom. They expected it to be visible, to be, to be right then. And then, in the midst of all of that, all those expectations, Jesus was arrested. He was tried. He was tortured. And then he was killed. And what did the disciples, <clears throat> these individuals that, that we respect and look up to, what did they do after Christ was arrested and, and crucified? They scattered. They ran. Do you ever analyze yourself if, if you have more of a fight or flee response when you're in the midst of stress? Some of you I know, you've got, you've got fight, right? That's why I don't mess with you, right? You know, but sometimes in certain moments we're like, am I a fight or am I a flee? Well, what does Scripture reveal to us about the disciples? For the most part, I guess they fell into the flee category. You might be able to say that, that Peter wasn't so much of a, of a, of a, of in that category, you know, but I don't know. After the, after the, uh, as Christ was arrested and crucified, you have, you have him kind of shrinking back and doing what he did. The apostle John, he, you know, he was there and, and visibly saw these things taking place, but pretty much everybody scattered. They fled, they ran, and they were heartbroken. They were devastated. The one they followed, the one they listened to, the one they loved, and the one that they expected to rule and to reign, was now killed, and they were puzzled by all of this in the midst of their heartbreak because that's not what they expected. And it's interesting because there are multiple instances through the Gospels when Jesus tells them exactly that this is going to happen. He gives them the specifics. He tells them what's about to happen. And they look at this and they're like, it's almost like they hear him say it. It's kind of like parenting, right? Like, they, you know they heard you say it. But you have the disciples acting as if he had never said it. Like he had never said it. 
And yet Jesus had given them very, very specific direction about what was about to happen to him, what he was about to endure. But all of them were heartbroken. They, they felt discouraged because Jesus had been crucified and killed. But the story doesn't end there. Death didn't defeat Jesus. Jesus defeated death. And on the third day after his crucifixion, Jesus began to appear in bodily form to his followers. He showed up, he talked to them, he interacted with them, and he actually did this for a period of 40 days before ascending back to heaven. And Jesus showed in his resurrection and in his post-resurrection appearances that the power and the finality of death had now been broken that a new perspective could be had toward death. His disciples didn't need to grieve any longer, nor did they need to live in fear, because Jesus had just accomplished the unthinkable. His body was dead, but now he had been raised back to life. And how did this impact the followers of Christ? How did it impact them? It's interesting when you look at what Scripture shows us about the disciples prior to the resurrection of Christ and afterward. Because prior to the resurrection of Christ, they do a lot of things that that I think it's very easy to look at and make fun of. You know, it's very easy to look at some of the things that they did and said and, and say, all right, that seems silly. Why would they say that? Or why would they do that? But then you see, after the resurrection, their perspective completely changes. Going forward, they stopped living like fearful men. They were fearful before, but they were different afterward. They boldly took the gospel to distant places. They boldly took the gospel to places where people were rather combative, and they didn't seem to be governed by the fear of death any longer. And I'll tell you, that's the thing that everyone you have ever met over the course of your life, that is the thing, that's the primary thing that people are afraid of in one respect or another. That's the biggie, right? People in general are afraid of death, and who can blame them? Because that's a very traumatic thing. But what Jesus demonstrated is that he has defeated death and that we, as those who are united to him, those that trust in him, we don't have to go about life with the perspective of being under the fear of death. We can live our lives with a certain boldness that he inspires. And you could see the apostles doing that very thing. They went from fearful men to bold and brave men. And in fact, uh, all but one of them had their lives taken from them as they were boldly proclaiming the gospel. But here's the thing, they, they continued to press on as people who are not fearful of death because I always think, you know, the way I phrase it in my mind is it does a lot in your mind when you know someone who has experienced death and, and come back from it. And so they didn't need to be fearful anymore because they knew for a fact that Jesus had been crucified. But then they saw Jesus after he rose from the grave and it changed their perspective They no longer lived as people who saw death as something with a permanent sting. Now, how does that reality affect us? You know, when you think about that, what Scripture reveals and what Scripture tells us about that, how does that impact you and I? Well, I think we can also live unafraid of death because death is now a defeated foe. We will see our believing loved ones yet again. We'll be granted a new everlasting body in God's kingdom as well. In his resurrection, Jesus defeated death. Death is defeated. It doesn't hold the power over us that it once held. Well, Scripture tells us something else that Jesus accomplished in his resurrection. 
and he made union with him possible. I love what we're told in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where it shows us that union with Christ is made possible through his resurrection. There it says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So here you have the Apostle Paul speaking to the Galatian Christians. And he's saying, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. He's talking about the fact that he's been united to Christ. I've told this story before, but it's something that my wife and I really enjoy, and I, I thought I'd share it again today. I remember several years ago, I was teaching for a week of summer camp, and uh, during summer camp, there's a whole bunch of games and different things that, that uh, the campers are playing, and at the time, my sons were, were both camping, and uh, one of the things that had happened, they, they were playing a game that was similar to dodgeball, and, but except it was out in a field, and it was kind of like every man for himself. And if you got hit with a ball, you had to sit down right where you were. But if a ball came up to you, you could grab that ball and get somebody out who was still standing. And if you got somebody out who was still standing, then you could get back in the game. And uh, in one particular game, one of the staff members got one of my sons out. And he was disappointed, and he had to sit down. And then my other son noticed that and got that staff member out. I was like, all right, take that. You got my brother, now I get you. And then that round ended, and they started a new round. And the two boys united and said, the first person we will get out is that staff member. They got that staff member out. And then that round ended soon after. And then a new round started. They was like, all right, we're going to start with the staff member? Yeah. And then they got the staff member out. And it kept happening round after round after round. And finally, that staff member came up to them and said, listen, this is getting extremely boring because the two of you have ganged up against me. I am requesting permission to unite with the two of you. And they looked at each other and said, do we, do we want to let them in? And they said, yeah. And then the three of them went on to get other people out together. And I, we always got a kick out of that because it's a great example of how there really is strength in unity. When you unite with somebody, when you, when you uh, ally yourself with somebody, when you, when you partner together, there is strength in unity. Well, Christ has made union with him possible. Now, union, unity is something that we, we come to value during the course of our lives. Uh, many of us have prayed for things like national unity. Many of us have prayed for things like unity within the church. Many of us have probably prayed at times for unity within our own families, because it doesn't take much to divide people. That's one of the things that I've learned over the course of my life. It really doesn't take a whole lot to divide well-meaning people. And so unity is sometimes a little bit hard to obtain because we're so easily divided. And so we pray for it. We pray for it in our nation. We pray for it in our churches. We pray for it in our families. But there's a form of unity that we are blessed with on a spiritual level that is directly connected to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus rose from death and lives within every single person who trusts in him, we are divinely enabled to be united with him. Paul mentions in Galatians 2.20 that we are united to Christ in his crucifixion and in our life in the flesh because Jesus lives within us. And if, if he didn't rise from death, this union would not be possible. But because he rose, we have the privilege to be united to him forever. Now, many times throughout Scripture, there's a phrase that's used for believers that I remember when I first read this, 
I was a little bit puzzled as to what this meant. I wasn't really sure why Scripture would phrase it this way, but it describes believers as being in Christ. Have you ever noticed that pattern? Some of you have noticed that as well. It describes us as believers as being in Christ. And I used to think to myself, what does it mean to be in Christ? Why does it keep saying we are in Christ? That's, in fact, often how our union with Christ is referenced in Scripture. We are described as being in Christ. It's a, it's a synonym or another way to phrase the fact that we are united with Christ. And as such, as we're united to Christ, we could look to Christ as being the source of several things. He's the source of our life, He's the source of our strength, and He's the source of our salvation. And as believers who are individually united to our risen Savior, we are likewise united to one another. We've been made part of the body of Christ. So as you're united to Christ and I'm united to Christ, well, if we're both united to Christ, we're both in Christ, that not only means that we're united to Christ, it also means we're united to one another because we are in the same person. We are in Christ. We are united to Him. So if I'm united to Christ and you are, we're likewise united to one another as the family of God, as the church of God. We are connected together as His family, sharing that union with Him, and because of His resurrection, that union is made possible, according to Galatians 2. Well, the Scripture also tells us something else, and this is something that ministers to me, I would say, on a daily basis, and maybe it ministers to you as well. But when you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, there it tells us that because of the resurrection of Christ, our outlook is one of hope. Look at what it says in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Let me reread that line. He says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not long ago, I was having a, uh, a conversation with someone that I first met when I was in college, and uh, this is somebody I would consider definitely on the short list of good friends, and, and since that time, we've, we've worked together on a variety of things, but there's something that over the past couple of years actually just kind of clicked in my mind about my friend, something about him that stood out to me ever since it first got my attention, and I don't know why it didn't dawn on me a little bit sooner, but I've noticed this. No matter what we're talking about, it doesn't matter the subject. So you can pick the subject. It it, it could literally be anything. He almost always seems to see it from the negative perspective. That did not occur to me for a very long time, but in recent days it has. So meaning, if the weather is nice, and you mention that the weather is nice, he will stress that it won't last. And I'm like, for real? You know, hey, it's beautiful weather. I love the spring weather. It's like, yeah, but you know, that's going to turn into some awful summer days. Awful summer days. It's like, how about we just enjoy the spring? That's a couple months away. Why do you have to do that every time, right? If a project, and we've worked on a bunch of projects together, if a project is successful, he's not going to celebrate the win without pointing out all the things that could possibly go wrong with it. It's like, okay, there is a time for that. But it's not all the time, right? His perspective is tolerable in small doses. But I've noticed that that sometimes I have to take a little bit of a pause for it because it's not a mindset that I'm eager to adopt because it's 
a little too negative for me. And I don't really think that that's something that's healthy for him. It's certainly not something that I think would be healthy for me either. Because once we come to know Christ, our outlook toward the future actually changes. Your outlook and my, look, my outlook toward the future, it, it dramatically changes. The way we see things dramatically changes. Through faith in Jesus, Scripture reveals to us that God the Father has caused us to experience a new birth. We just read that in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. Our first birth was physical in nature. And a birth that's physical in nature, it also has an obvious outcome. So what's the obvious outcome of a birth that's physical in nature? Well, we know that our bodies wear out and eventually they die. So that's the outcome of a physical birth. But the Scripture tells us that we have another birth if we know Jesus Christ. And it's referred to in Scripture at times as our new birth, right? This new birth that we have through Jesus. And our new birth is a spiritual birth. When you're born spiritually, through faith in Jesus. And that new birth is filled with hope because it's been secured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has secured it. It is a secure hope. And I bring this up whenever Scripture brings up the concept of hope because I think sometimes that word needs clarification. When we use the word hope, we tend to, use the, we tend to mean wish, right? It's like, oh, I, it's Easter Sunday. I, I hope I find a parking spot. Right? We left the house five minutes later than I, than I thought. So I'm sure somebody said in their car, oh, we left five minutes later than we thought. I hope we find a parking spot. Well, I, I hope you did too, right? But what do we mean? We wish, right? I was also talking with somebody earlier uh, how 11, every 11 years we tend to have an abnormally hot summer. And this is the 11th year since the last time we had an abnormally hot summer. And so we were talking about how we hope that this summer is not abnormally hot hot. We're like, oh, I hope. This is, this is year 11. The way the sun cycles work, isn't this the year that's the hot one? We're like, I hope, right? And what do we mean? We mean, I wish. It is my wish that it would not be abnormally hot. It is my wish that it wouldn't be something that just scorches all vegetation. But we don't tend to use the word hope the way that the Bible is using the word hope, because when the Bible's using the word hope, it's not talking about a wish, and it's not talking about a fantasy, and it's not talking about a maybe. It's talking about something that is certain, something that's certain because it's anchored in the nature of God and the promises of God. And throughout His Word, He has assured us of many things. He's assured us that He will be present with us. So we have hope in that, right? And it's not a wish or a fantasy. We know for certain He is present with us. He's also assured us that He will strengthen us. He's also assured us that He will protectively hold us in His hands. He's also assured us that He will answer our prayers in accordance with His perfect will. He's also assured us that every trial that takes place in the lives of those who have faith in Jesus Christ will be a trial that works together for the good of the person going through it. And these are things that Scripture refers to in the context of having a hopeful perspective, but it's not a wishful perspective or it's, it's not a fantasy. It's saying, because my hope is anchored in the unchanging nature of my God, I can be certain that He will see me through in the midst of these things, and that if He promises something to me, He always delivers on it without exception. There are no maybes, there's no time when He forgets, He always delivers, and He always works things together for the good of those who love Him. And according to Peter's letter, this living hope that we've been blessed with is directly connected to the resurrection of Jesus Christ the most hopeful moment 
in human history. Something else that we could see, because the resurrection happened, believers will also be raised. Now, I don't expect you to turn there with me because I'm going to read three things in, in fast succession. I want to read something from Romans, something from John, and something from 1 Thessalonians. But look at the pattern in what I'm about to read, where it shows us that believers will also be raised. There it says this in Romans 6, 5, it says, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And if you look at John 5, verses 28 and 29, it says this, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Then 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 through 18 says this, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Do you see the pattern that's present in these verses, because it says it multiple times. It's revealing a truth to us from multiple angles. Do you hear the message the Lord's trying to drill into our minds through these examples that He gives to us in His Word? These are things related to the fact that we are united to Christ by faith. And the Word of God assures us that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so too will all who are in Christ be raised that what happened to him that we're commemorating today and remembering today is something that's also in your future and my future if we're united to him. He was the first fruit of the resurrection, and we will be fruit that comes along afterward. In the book of Romans, Paul stated that those who are united to Christ in a death like his will also experience a resurrection like his. He says it in very plain language. Then in the Gospel of John, Jesus informed us that an hour is coming when those who are in their tombs will hear His voice and be raised to the resurrection of life. And in the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul speaks of those who are in Christ being raised and living forever with the Lord. So again, Christ's resurrection, what was it? It was a foretaste of what He has in store for His body, the church. Believers will also be raised because Christ experienced resurrection, those who are united to Him will also be raised. But there's one more thing I want to show us from Scripture this morning, and that's this. And I'll show this to us from two different angles. Christ's authority to, to judge the world was demonstrated in His resurrection. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, look at what it says in Acts 17.31, and then I'll jump down to 2 Corinthians 5. But Acts 17.31 says this, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And then it says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, we live in a very interesting time, and, um, you know, I like to read all sorts of 
books of history and, and things about what life was like for people in different times. And sometimes I get curious about what it would be like to live in, in uh, you know, an era before indoor plumbing or an era before we have our, our homes, you know, wired with electricity or, or, you know, some young people might be wondering what it was like before the internet. Um, it was terrible. Like, it was, like some, literally, sometimes we'd just go stand in fields and just walk around in circles. We had literally no idea where we were. It was a very complicated time. Thankfully, you weren't born then. But we live in a very interesting time. And even though I, I think sometimes I get nostalgic for other times, I'm actually glad to live in this era. And I might as well be glad to live in this era because I didn't get to pick what era I was born in, right? So you might as well just like the one you're in, Right? But it's actually very clear when you look at what Scripture tells us that it's not an accident that you were born when you were born, and it's actually not an accident that you live where you live, and it's also not an accident that you know the people that you know. The whole thing's part of a plan. The whole thing's very intentional, and it's something that the Lord's orchestrating toward greater things. But it's certainly interesting in our era, in this season of time that that all of us live in, It's interesting to observe the polarizing ways that Jesus is perceived right now, because Jesus remains a very polarizing person. So some utterly reject him, and some utterly reject his claims, while others, like us, we come together, we enthusiastically worship him, we call him Lord, and we look forward to the day when we are going to see him face to face, and that's a day that we will experience. We are going to see him face to face. And when you look at what it says in Acts 17, which we just read a moment ago, and then what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, which we just read a moment ago, it tells us that there is a day coming when this world is going to give an account to Jesus. Now, today we're celebrating His resurrection, but the day is coming when this world's going to give an account to Him, meaning we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's what those verses explain to us. Now, I don't know if that thought is a comforting thought to your heart, the thought of standing before the judgment seat of Christ, or if that thought is maybe a frightening thought to your heart, but whichever way it strikes your heart, it's still your reality, and it's still my reality. We are going to come before Him. Because Jesus came to this earth and took on flesh and lived a sinless life as a man on this earth and then rose from death, his authority to sit over humanity and judge humanity was demonstrated through his resurrection. He showed that he was the one who defeated sin and wasn't defeated by sin. And so his authority to judge those who commit sin was firmly established in his resurrection. And I have to admit this, the thought of one day standing before him while In one sense, that's a joyful thought. There's another sense when I think about that, that it gives me pause. Because I know that throughout the course of my life, there are many actions that I have taken. There are many words that I have said. And there are many moments throughout the course of my life that I actually wish I could take back. Do you have moments like that? Things you've either said or done or thought or actions you've taken that you think, all right, with the wisdom I have now, if I could go back in time and relive that specific moment, I would do that one completely different. I was in a different mental spot at that time. 
or different season of life at that time or operating with different information at that time, if I could go back, I would do that one different. Well, guess what? We don't get the opportunity to go back and do that one different. And so I think about that in regard to myself. It's like, all right, I'm going to have to give an account to Jesus for every moment of my life and every decision I ever made and every action I ever took and every word I ever said. I'm going to have to stand before him and I'm going to have to give an account. That's enough to give a person pause because I know I didn't get it all right. And I know I'm not the only one because all of us are probably thinking, I I actually think I saw several of you kind of loosen your collars, right, as I said that. Collectively, we realize we're in the same boat. But here's the thing. We can also be grateful for the fact that when we stand before him, we're not going to stand as men and women who are condemned. If you are in Christ, Scripture says there is no condemnation in store for you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who are united to Christ. Yes, we're going to give an account for our life, but we're not going to give an account for our life with condemnation on the other side of that account. That brings my heart a lot of peace. And it's all because of what Jesus has done on our behalf, because when he came to this earth, he took our condemnation upon himself. He took our shame upon himself. We deserved condemnation. We deserved to bear the shame of our mistakes forever. And yet he came and he took it upon himself for us because he knew it was a weight we couldn't continue to carry. And again, as Scripture tells us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are united to Christ, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I love thinking about that, especially on a day like today as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And Scripture demonstrates for us, even as we looked at at a variety of Scriptures this morning, that Christ's resurrection matters for us probably in more ways than we may initially realize. And as we wrap up this morning, I actually want to do something that I hope will be helpful for all of us. I actually want to um, just finish by asking a few questions, and I'll pause between each of these questions, because what I'm hoping is that these questions will uh, just provoke some introspection and some additional thought. And it's all related to what we just looked at together. So let me just throw these things out. And I want you to consider these things. Question number one is this. Are you living like death has been defeated by Jesus? Or does the fear of death still master your emotions? Second question is this. Are you confident of your union with Christ, or do you still feel distant from Him? Third question is this. Are you hopeful toward the future, or are your thoughts toward the future still mostly negative? Fourth question is this, are you confident that you will experience a resurrection just like Christ did? Then the last question is this, right now, if it was today, are you ready to give an account for your life to Jesus face to face?
Christ invites us to know him. And if, this, if at this point you feel distant from him, or if at this point you feel fearful of coming before him, I want to encourage your heart with something this morning. I want you to remember the invitation that he has given you to know him, and I want you to experience new life through him, and I want you to understand that you can be forgiven by him. And I want to finish up our time together this morning with his own words that he spoke in John chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. And in that portion of scripture, it says this, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, he was saying this to his disciples in preparation for what he was about to do. He was prepping their minds for the fact that he, as the good shepherd, was going to lay down his life for those that he loved. But he also said, keep in mind the statement he said right before that, he said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And I'll tell you what, if you're trying to find that life through anything in this world, you won't find it. You're going to come up short every time, and your heart's going to be disappointed. But if you can come to a spot where you recognize that through faith in Jesus Christ, you genuinely can experience new life, everlasting life, and as he describes it here, abundant life, abundant life, and he wants you to have it. He already paid for it. It's kind of like somebody giving, you know, paying for a gift and then you never taking the time to open it. He already paid for it. It's already paid for, and now he freely offers it to anyone who willingly accepts it. If we trust in Jesus Christ, we will experience that new life, and he promises us that it's everlasting life and it is abundant life. And I'll tell you what, as someone who's known Jesus now for a while, it's good life, and I wouldn't trade the life that he's blessed me with in him for the life that I had before I was united to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that you have given us this morning to be able to come together and to worship you and to look at the things that you've revealed to us in your word. Lord, it's amazing to think about these things. It's amazing to think about the significance of the resurrection and how that's not just a historical moment, but there's so much spiritual significance to what you accomplished on our behalf. Lord, we pray that we would think of your resurrection in a very personal way. We pray that this wouldn't just be information that we think of in a historical way, but that we would recognize that you endured what you endured for us so that we would experience this new life through you. Lord, you offer this gift of new life to us, and we know that there are many people who will hear about this gift today, who will hear about salvation, who will hear about the opportunity to be forever united with you. And some will receive that gift and some will reject it. But Father, it's my prayer, and I know that it's the prayer of many others, that there would be not a single one of us in the hearing of your word this morning that would reject this gift that you've offered us through your Son. Those of us gathered here in this room, those of us accessing this on, on, on the live stream, those accessing the recording later on, Lord, if we've heard your truth proclaimed, we pray that we would latch on to it 
recognize our need for your Son to be our Savior, and that we would know you and walk with you forever. Again, Father, thank you for all that's been done on our behalf. We're grateful to be able to celebrate the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, today. The fact that we, we can look forward to the future with an optimistic perspective, knowing that death has been defeated on our behalf. We have new life and will be raised as well if we are united to your Son. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.